Because no race has the last word on culture and on civilization. They do not know what we are capable of. They do not know what we are thinking. They are thinking in terms of dreadnoughts, battleships, aeroplanes, submarines. You know what we are thinking about? That is our own private business. You are listening to The Brown CEO. You are listening to The Brown CEO. I'm your host, Selma Idris. Follow the conversation every week as I speak to some of the dopest minds from around the planet about what's broken and how we're going to fix it. This is The Conversation Between Us, every Tuesday. Yalla, let's go. Hello and welcome to The Brown CEO. I am your host, Selma Idris. Since our episode, Sudan Uprising, with journalist and activist Sarah Hessen, we have been talking about and updating you on the revolution in Sudan. Peaceful protest culminated in one of the largest, most organized, and human acts of nationwide civil disobedience our modern planet has seen. The people shut the country down and in turn reminded us of the power of the people. But the power of the revolution is now being combated with massacre. International forces are supporting a terrorist militia led by the same military leader responsible for the genocide in Darfur, incentivizing them to bring hell on the people in cities all over Sudan, and for the first time at this scale, on the people of the capital in Khartoum. Darfur has come to Khartoum, and since the beginning of the Ramadan massacres on June 3rd, the terrorist military government has blacked out the internet to silence the people, cut them off from the world, and hide the atrocities. Mainstream media coverage has been shameful, but the good people of the earth, from celebrities such as Hassan Minaj, Rihanna, and all of you, are talking about it, researching the whole complete narrative amplifying Sudanese voices and feeding us the color blue, honoring our martyrs, blanketing the grieving diaspora with support, hashtagging Sudan uprising, and I am the Sudan revolution, begging for something to be done. The same question is asked over and over and over again by the good people of the earth, by the grieving Sudanese diaspora, by all of us who feel connected and who feel helpless. What do we do? How do we fix it? On the agenda today is Sudan Uprising continues with Monica Dennis, a core organizer with Black Lives Matter New York City and co-director of Move to End Violence to help us work through some ideas and strategies to stand in solidarity with black lives, including the people of Sudan. But first, to frame our discussion, we are joined via phone by Sudanese-American journalist Ismail Kushkush. Thank you so much. I know you're super busy with everything going on, um, but thank you for uh, making some time to talk to us today. On the line, I have um, uh, Ismail Kushkush. He's a freelance journalist who has contributed uh, to the New York Times, CNN, Al Jazeera English, the Associated Press, Routers, Guernica Magazine, and others. Um, I wanted to call and talk to Ismail today because he is very, he's a Sudanese-American, and is very close to what is happening in Sudan and is a wealth of knowledge. Um, and I wanted to talk to you about a lot of the questions that we've been having from our users and, you know, our Instagram followers and so on. That's cool. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Um, so one of the questions that we, we've, we've had is 
what really is the foreign involvement in all of this? Um, you know, like everybody's like, okay, we understand there's a massacre happening in Sudan, but what are these other hands that are at play? What is Saudi's, uh, Saudi Arabia's hand? What is Egypt's hand, UAE and so on? Could you talk to us a little bit about that? Right. So we can um, you know, first identify the immediate regional interest in what is happening in Sudan. Um, Sudan's neighbor to the north, Egypt, and to the east, Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates have uh, come across in the past years since the popular uprisings in the region as forces who support um, regimes, governments um, that are not necessarily uh, democratic. Um, the uprising in Sudan um, that has been going on for four or five months um, seeks to bring out a genuine democratic, genuine democratic transformation in the country after 30 years of uh, dictatorship. And if we look at the political um, axes, alliances in the region, um, they've been mostly um, described as competition between a Saudi Emirati. Egypt axis on the one hand and the Qatari Turkish axis on the other. And we've seen immediate interest and um, connections um, by the Saudis, Emiratis, and Egyptians with the ruling military council in Sudan. And that is what many protest leaders fear that Sudan gets dragged into this Cold War um, in the region uh, that turns. Um, the Sudan revolution into uh, or lead it to a a situation very similar to what you have in Egypt under Sisi. Mm. What about the EU's involvement and the U.S.'s involvement? Because those are the other two players that we hear a lot in the media. Right. So there's also an international dimension to this. Uh, the U.S., the European Union, Russia, and China. Um, the U.S., um, has made statements um, either in support of uh, the protest and calls for transformation to a democratic government, but I don't think we've seen um, strong enough action yet from the U.S. side. Um, the EU has been more vocal on this, uh, but it seems that it still needs to take a more um, active role. Um, if we look at what the interests of the U.S. and the EU are um, the past uh, decade or so, uh, for the U.S. it's mostly been about security, um, that the Sudanese government of Bashir had cooperated with the U.S. on issues of regional security, fighting terrorism, extremism in the area, particularly in the Sahel, with Boko Haram, and in the Horn of Africa with the Shabab and then with North Africa and the Middle East with groups like Al-Qaeda and ISIS. So the U.S.'s main interest has been maintaining its security cooperation with um, whoever's in power in, in Khartoum. With the EU, it's been the issue of migration. Sudan has been a major transit point uh, for migrants in East Africa and other places towards the Mediterranean. And it had signing agreements with the government in Khartoum, and what was known as the Khartoum process, which is a regional um, agreement 
that brought the governments of East Africa and North Africa to fight um, uh, or to put a hold on migration. Um, the one uh, force that had been uh, on the forefront of of, um, of executing um, you know these um, strategies um, was the uh, RSF, the uh, Rapid Support Forces, uh, led by Mohammed Hamdan Degaru uh, Hameti, uh, who is now the second man in, in Khartoum. And uh, many believe that the European Union wants to continue that type of agreement. Uh, but, um, you, know, it, it, you know, the days will, uh, in the upcoming days, we'll see exactly what kind of um, relationship uh, or what kind of policies the EU will have towards the government in Sudan. Russia and China historically were uh, allies of the Bashir regime and uh, don't want to lose out on um, upcoming, whatever transformation happens in Sudan. China's main issue has been with oil. Um, Chinese oil company has been uh, the major investor in oil in Sudan and South Sudan wants to maintain its influence uh, within Sudan or in East Africa in general. Russia also has been expanding into Africa. Um, so those are the international players in, on the goals and the interests um, in new um, government in Sudan. So when we talk about not enough action being taken um, by some of the the international players that have, you know, like the U.S., who has, has, has come out in, in support of the protesters. What do we mean by action? I think that's what's stumping a lot of people. What, what, do, we need, what do we need in terms of international action? I think there needs to be resolutions. There needs to be um, in, in, in investigations, um, actions that would curb uh, or would uh, um, send a strong message to um, the current military leaders in Sudan, be it sanctions, um, et cetera. Um, I mean, there, there, there are different types of actions that um, international players can take. Um, but I, I think we need to see stronger um, condemnations followed uh, uh, by um, actions that will um, um, make it very clear that the killing of civilians is inexistent unacceptable and that there'll be consequences um, in, in, in one way or the other. Okay. What do you think we can do as frustrated um, citizens of the planet um, rooting for good? What can we do in terms of immediate actions that we can take? I think um, immediately it's just raising the issue um, and amplifying Sudanese voices. Um, and, and I think we're starting to see that, um, which uh, to a degree um, has surprised me. And we're seeing um, different activist groups, um, different um, you know, various celebrities, uh, not only in the West, but even uh, in Africa and the Middle East, um, showing their support to the Sudanese protesters. Um, whether through online campaigns, I think um, it's important to shed light on these issues and, um, and uh, make sure that um, the narratives on these uh, on what's happening in Sudan um, doesn't get oversimplified 
um, that um, the the main voices that explain what happens in Sudan are Sudanese voices. Um, I think Sudanese uh, have had an experience in the early 2000s where um, issues in Sudan were mainly um, spearheaded, or, or the voices that were heard were, were non-Sudanese voices uh, that um, you know adopted narratives that were grossly oversimplistic and um, you know uh, narrations that uh, um, uh, didn't go deep into the issues. And I think um, you know this time around uh, we need to make sure that Sudanese voices are the ones that are being amplified. And that action, um, in, in some ways, uh, follows through. Actually, Isman, for the studio with us today, we have Monica Dennis, who is actually an activist and uh, works for Black Lives Matter. Um, and it was important for me to invite her today because I wanted to make the connection that it is a global struggle of the marginalized. And the commonality we have here is that this is black lives. This is Sudan is the land of the blacks. Like that's what Sud means. Um, Africa and the, that foundation is an important part of your existence as a black person dispersed from her um, for everyone. So the struggle is the same. And, and there's a, a, lot of, a lot of commonalities. She's a strategist, and I invited her today to talk about some of the stuff that you just started talking about for us. Like, who are the players? What can we do? How can we connect this? And how can we amplify Sudanese voices? So I just wanted to introduce you guys quickly. I'm sorry, that was the like most non-eloquent <laughs> intro. But I wanted to introduce you guys and let you guys have a chance to say hi. And yeah, peace, peace, brother. So grateful for the analysis and the um, experience that you're sharing. And just want to just share back that uh, black folks here are with you. Definitely those of us who are organizing in what has been a centuries-long black liberation movement that we know that our liberation is connected to yours. And we're sending you peace and light, and we will be doing our work here in the movement for black lives to amplify what is happening in Sudan. Uh, thank you, and, and greetings. Um, you know, this, this would not be the first time that um, the struggles of uh, black people in the U.S., mm -hmm. Um, had connections with, uh, with Sudan. Um, you know, Malcolm X was, uh, uh, two of his very close associates in his last days were Sudanese. His personal religious advisor was a Sudanese, um, imam. And, um, um, you know, if you look into, um, the interest that many Sudanese, especially in the 60s, had, Black liberation struggles in, in, in the U.S. Um, there was a lot of interest uh, in Sudan, so this would not be uh, the first time. Um, I think um, you know African Americans are in the uh, position to you know, amplify the voices of, uh, of the struggles of, of continental Africans, uh, and um, I think that's uh, where um, you know a lot of this uh, solidarity comes from. I can just so relate and connect, and I'm uh, having a lot of uh, good energy just listening to you. Part of my work in movement spaces, among my many things, has been 
to connect those dots, right? So part of what happens in communities in the United States, Black and otherwise, is that we see things like the civil rights movement or uh, the movement for Black lives as just centrally located because our histories have been so disconnected. Mm -hmm. But those of many of us know that what was happening in civil rights for 100 years is part of a pan-African liberation movement yes. that was has been happening for centuries, right? As we uh, work on multiple levels of uh, decolonizing the spaces that have been um, occupying our bodies, our souls, our hearts, our land, our resources. And so t for me to be in this conversation with you and with Selma is just an extension of that work that we have been doing forever. We've been doing forever. Yes. yes. We do have a responsibility um, as African-Americans. I'm a person who is, uh, my people are, I'm a seventh generation African born in the United States. Um, my ancestor, whose history we still have uh, access to, she's stolen from where we don't know, but she's trafficked from the West Coast, and she's sold twice when she's brought into the U.S. territory, once in Virginia and once what is known as uh, the southeastern part of the United States in Georgia. And um, that's what I know from my lived experience is that there has not been a decade that my people, our families, have not been under... Um, this type of terrorism, mm -hmm. right? And so uh, my organizing and my work is to is directly connected back to home, right? It's connected back to home, even though I may not have a, a specific place to call home. Africa is my home, uh, and it is influencing my politic. Africa is the continent, of course, knowing that it's not a single thing, a monolith, but it is influencing all of our politics. Yes. Yes. Okay, kush kush. Thank you so much. I don't want to take up, I know you're busy, you have to go um, with for your deadlines and everything. Um, did you have anything that you wanted to add? Um, any? Um, I think it's again that um, what, you know, what I've, um, and what's been amazing about this uh, uprising in Sudan, uh, not only the uh, its commitment to nonviolence, not only the, the creativity that's come out of it, uh, but the international uh, and global solidarity that it's been able to generate. Um, and I think we're particularly seeing that from you know African uh, communities uh, worldwide. Um, and I think that this needs to continue. Um, you know what we. Um, um, you know, we don't know where things are going right now in Sudan, especially after the, uh, the June 3rd massacre um, in Khartoum. Um, but I think it, it uh, you know, uh, the light needs to be uh, shed on events uh, in Sudan, and uh, um, the solidarity needs to continue. Indeed. Indeed. Thank you, brother. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. I'll talk to you soon. All right. Thank you. Okay. Nice Bye-bye. Knowing that your work comes from that foundation makes me feel stronger because as someone who is an African-American, um, I was born in Sudan. I came here when I was three. I grew up in New York. I grew up in Westchester. So to me, 
I'm very American, but I'm very connected to Sudan. The majority of my family still lives in Khartoum. Mm-hmm. Um, so to maneuver in the States and constantly be under attack and have two black sons here who are now Americans, um, who I know are constantly under attack and I'm, I'm scared. And then to turn around and have my safe space where I went home and stood tall and didn't think about being black. Yes, we had our issues, but now to have been invaded um, by these gingerweed forces um, and to know that that's even crumbling too. I, I think that we're, we're at a point where we have to do something. The, the dream of, of the Pan-African um, and, and the Pan-Africanist and from the first person who left the continent who wanted to just go home from that first soul. Um, we, I think it's, it's, it's in our best interest to come together and fix home. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Hmm, I'm just going to take a deep breath and yeah. just um, my heart is with you in, in this moment um, and with your people who are my people, but also specifically your people. And um, that fear of not knowing where home is. And then also there's, a, I think sometimes in the media, it doesn't um, share the level of intensity and fear that we are living under here in the United States as black people, as African people. So my heart is with your heart, and um, I think I think I think there's like the the relationship of those of us who are Black folks who are born in the United States and having access to the media in the way we have is is um, is unique and is not an experience that Black people across the planet actually have. And I think that's um, that has been part of our organizing through Black Lives Matter to be able to amplify and elevate the stories of what is happening because we're situated here in a way um, and because we have access to resources um, and because there's a semi-democratic process happening here, Mm -hmm. um, what is our relationship to those resources? We are also in the belly of the beast, but our situation is just different. And how can we um, break down some of the false like walls that are between us that actually disrupt our possibility to be a whole movement, doing different things, right? So it's not about us being, it's not so much about us being um, all agreeing about all, about all of the things, but how can we move as a body that is holding the vision together yeah. of what it means to be safe, to have our dignity maintained, mm-hmm. to be able to feed our children in the ways that are healthy and, and right, to be able to practice the things that we want to practice, right? Like basic level humanity is is due us and we are worthy of that. And I think particularly in the United States with some of like the false, uh, the false understanding of history, it really pits yeah. black peoples of the diaspora against each other, right? Mm-hmm. And we start playing into, we have been, um, playing into habits that are, why would you see me as safe as home, right? As a black person who was born in the US and you who have, um, who are directly connected to your roots, right? Mm-hmm. There's like, histor- not even historical, like false antagonism that happens between our communities, that when I need you, I can't call on you because I have all of these filters, not me personally, but the, um, the stereotypes, mm-hmm. and that I have not, as a black person or black communities in the United States, always made it a safe place for black immigrants who are coming from all parts of the world, right? And yeah. so if we can work, we, we have to work through some of that yeah. as we're working on the big state issues. Yeah, yeah. no, definitely. I, I think that if we don't 
there's nowhere for us to go if we don't work on that. If we yes. can't unify as a people and understand that the stranger danger was something that was um, cooked up, manufactured, it's all part of the narrative. Um, every time you, we, you, you see it, every, anytime somebody brings up slavery, it's always, no, black people sold black people to slavery. Mm -hmm. So it's your fault. It's all on you. Even now when we see with the Sudan uprising, and they're saying, oh, well, you guys are killing each other. And it's like, no, actually, we're cleaning up your colonialistic mess. And we're still freaking cleaning it up. And we're handing you exactly what you want. We're handing you democracy. And you're saying, I don't care. That's not what I was here for. So I called your lie out. So understanding that as black folk everywhere, we've called their lie out, whether it be here with police are here for your protection. Mm. I called your lie out, you know, and peacefully. And that's why I, it was so important for me to have Black Lives Matter here because the respect I have for the wave, um, the organization, um, the ability to take a phrase that I think 10 years ago, people would have been like, don't even use those words. Like we wouldn't even call ourselves black 10 years ago. So to be able to elevate that and amplify that voice um, to that degree, combined in synergy with what's happening right now, um, I think, I mean, that's explosion. This is a wave that I think that we should ride. Um, the planet's woke. I think we should, we should go with it. Mm -hmm. um, I want to talk to you about, like, what, what do we do? Like, what, what are some strategies that we can employ? Yeah. I, um, for me, Black Lives Matter is like an organizing principle. It's how I orient myself in the world, right? Like if I wake up in the morning and I think about Black Lives Mattering, one that includes everybody that's in my atmosphere, that includes me, and that also sets um, us up for what it is that we will be demanding from whomever, whether it's inside of our communities as well as from the state. So um, when I think about opportunities here, there's a lot of work that is happening around state surveillance, state repression, um, the state imprisonment. And when I say state, I just mean government, right? Like mm -hmm. um, there's a lot of active work, particularly here in New York City and across the United States. And so part of where I see opportunities in relationship to what is happening, what is being asked of us, I'll say it that way, from um, our, our Sudanese uh, relatives is to use some of those spaces where we're doing a ton of political education about like, we don't want any new jails in our community. We're working on reducing police surveillance. We are looking at who is funding the police and the military. And these forces are actually at the same root, right? So mm -hmm. when I hear Ishmael talk about um, whose interests are at stake, the same interests are, ha the same uh, parties have an interest in maintaining a military state around for black folks here. Mm -hmm. So what is, I think part of our work is to continue to do some political education internally as a strategy. So folks see similar to how we organized uh, uh, divestment campaigns around South Africa and anti-apartheid movement, right? Once we understand what's going on, black people will move. Black people have always moved. I, I believe black people embody democracy in, mm. in, the, in the truest sense of the word, not in just a, a, a structure for government, but what does it mean to actually be in collaborative community and build something together? Mm -hmm. And so once, partly once enlightened and then once mobilized, uh, folks will respond. So a second strategy I think about is uh, 
bringing um, one of the things I'll just kind of back up a little bit when we when Mike Brown was murdered a few years back, um, people were feeling this restlessness and this pain. Right. There had been a series of murders of black men, black women as well. We were feeling heartbroken. It was like restlessness, like we don't we don't know how to move and where to go, as well as a lot of heartbreak. And so there was something to, as a political organizing strategy, just bringing people together so we could process what happened, I think is a really important organizing tactic. Because when we, those of us who are organizers, bring people together, the solutions for what's possible will come. But people need a space to convene, right? Mm -hmm. They need a space to convene. They need the trust that folks are going to hold them. And they need a space to grieve. So um looking at what are the opportunities for us to convene some folks, to bring folks together, to make the connections between what is happening here and in Sudan, and then to listen to folks and see what is it, where are the points of access and who can maneuver what. Yeah. No, I think that's important. I mean, that's why it was so important for them to disperse it violently, because that's what you mm -hmm. saw in the uprising. The beauty of the the revolution um, and the uprising, I feel, is the fact that the communities did come together. Like some, a lot of the folks on the ground were describing the protests as um, like almost family picnic atmosphere. It was during the holy month of Ramadan, the last few days, the last uh, month of it. Um, and there's food exchange and, you know, moms making sure everybody out there was fed and there was speeches and it, the, the feeling, the energy was frightening to the powers that be. That's how powerful it was. And I think that's the learning that we should take from that and understand how powerful it is when um, a peaceful protest comes together and people are given a space to process and think and strategize and, you know, decide how to create their safe spaces together. Um, so I, I receive that. Um, Political education, I think, is very important. Um, the great thing about uh, the Sudan uprising movement, like I, I sent you the master document. It was amazing. <laughs> they, yes. We have some great folks doing a lot of great work um, and making sure that our story is told by us. And um, we need to make sure that those those stories are amplified and that will that will help provide that education. We need to get together um, and organize. I know that there's a lot of protests being organized across the world and across the diaspora, and it's a beautiful thing. And then I just encourage people to, as Monica said, make sure that we're also organizing time for us to meet. You know, the Sudanese people love shy. Let's feed everyone. We feed everyone. Bring everyone in. Bring all of your African friends, your African-American friends. Invite them over for shy. Explain your story. Explain the connection. Some of, most folks I know don't even know I'm Sudanese. Mm. So they're everywhere. We're amongst you. We're like one of the most like inconspicuous, invisible Africans that, that you'll, you'll have. We're amongst you. We're in your community. Um, please tell their stories, listen to their stories, document their stories, um, amplify the stories that they document. Um, yeah. The other thing that I'm, I, I love that was just, that was happening in my mind, where the spaces where we are already meeting and where can we get together um, and continue to do what you're saying. I also am thinking about another strategy is to attract money, right? Mm -hmm. like, 
who is supplying weapons? What are those companies? Those companies are often U.S.-based companies who are um, who are shipping, who are buying and shipping arms all over the world. And so, what are the who who are the manufacturers of the military equipment that is being sh not only shipped to Sudan or being resourced in Sudan? And then, what is happening here in the United States? We know there's a lot of military weaponry on the streets, mm -hmm. of, and and um, oh, right. So yes. we saw that in Ferguson. We see that here, in New York City Police Department in particular, is a police department that trains people all over the world around how to defend yourself from terrorism. And I use that in air quotes, right? And so after 9-11, the New York City Police Department became um, a base of actually extending the military industrial complex by providing uh, new ways of surveilling, training, and all in the name of protecting New Yorkers, right? Mm. And so now we're almost 20 years out from 9-11, and the impact of that has been exponential yeah. because the NYPD has been seen as a... Uh, a prime resource and how to how to maneuver military equipment and surveillance. And so those, to me, I know that if we sat down and did a mapping mm -hmm. of who is controlling resources and making sure when weaponizing different regions of the country, that we'd be able to do some uh, and continued divestment, right? Mm -hmm. So we have issues of gun violence here in the United States that are very much connected to how violence is being inflicted on people across the across the continent and in this moment in Sudan. Oh, definitely, definitely, because the same folks that are doing that are providing the weapons to the yes. Janjaweed. Yep, who are in turn, and this is rumors from the street, but it's pretty accurate that um, they're leaving the weapons in the streets in Sudan, hoping. Mm that the people will pick them up and fight back, which gives them a reason to now kill these violent folks. Um, and that's why being peaceful is so important. Uh, one thing that you hit to the, the economic pressure, shout out to Marvin Francois, our, one of our guests. He's a banker um, and he's an entrepreneur. He's the CEO of Wonkin. And he reached out to me this week in concern of everything that he'd heard in Sudan and just said that he didn't know enough information, there wasn't enough media coverage, where are the real resources? Um, and then he ended the conversation with, how can I fix it? What can I do? And I don't know. So one thing that we did say was maybe because he has the financial education and the economic background and the computer, <laughs> can you please source companies and interests that we can actually put economic pressure on. We saw it work in Sudan. We saw what civil disobedience can do. We saw that shutting down a country would unleash hellfire on this planet. Um, so let's continue to do that. If we're saying that the revolution isn't over, it's only begun, um, let's help them do that. So we are, and I saw it also on Twitter, we are going to be contacting everyone and hopefully putting it into the master document. And I will... Um, that all that information will be available for everyone in the show notes and on the site. But um, we are going to be compiling a list of uh, Saudi airliners, Egypt, companies, dates, whatever it is that you shouldn't be buying, that you shouldn't be supporting. We can start to do that. Um, every little bit, it's all layers. This is a whole bunch of layers. It's a big sandwich, as uh, my friend Carice said. Um, and we have to tackle each layer. So yeah, I appreciate that as a strategy as well, definitely. Yeah, I'm, I, so much is in my mind. Um, part of my work on a day-to-day -day is addressing state violence. So I do that in my community organizing work, but I'm also 
the co-director of an organization here called Move to End Violence. And what we do is we support folks who are doing work to end violence against women and girls in their communities. Pretty much it's a US-based uh, program organization. And so that's everything from immigration as a form of violence, like what is happening to folks, uh, domestic assault, domestic violence and sexual assault. So all levels of violence from the state to the interpersonal. And so I have been thinking a lot and reflecting a lot on what is happening to the women, what happened to what has what happens to women during war and conflict mm -hmm. and what are the and what happened to women on June 3rd in particular. And so just what are the how do we also organize or support people in organizing support for survivors of sexual assault mm -hmm. at the hands of war. And so I, I would love to hear what, as, as the master document uh, grows that you all have put together, which is brilliant, which I'm looking forward to sharing, what are the supports that people are needing on the ground that women and children are needing in particular? Because violence, uh, that type of military violence impacts us differently. Mm -hmm. And so what could what else could we be doing to support that? Yeah. And there's a the trauma post-rape um, yes. in those communities and done purposefully to break the, it was done purposefully to break the protest um, because it was such a heavily woman-led protest. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the beautiful stories of the Nubians and the Kandakas came out and people understood now the legacy of the strength of the woman on the continent. Um, probably why we call her Mother Africa. Um, but that, to me, that was the biggest atrocity of it not being covered. It being the year of the woman and the narrative here being so woman power, woman power, woman power. And then, you know, that being revealed as a tactic to break this. And no support of that. And no one, there, there's going to be a lot of work that's going to be done in terms of healing that's going to have to come from that. Um, Absolutely. And, and yeah. so uh, Tarana Burke of the Me Too movement is a, is a friend of mine and a co-organizer. And so as I sit here, have this conversation with you, um, thinking about how do we make the link between... Yeah. Me too. What is the what is the network of Me Too in amplifying what is what is happening and sending light and sending resources if whatever is required and necessary mm -hmm. to women who are survivors of this type of violence and that is like a long uh, a centuries old tactic of war right that mm -hmm. we actually we assault women we destabilize communities we use it as a form of terrorism to others in the community right so yeah. the, a lot of these assaults um, are public. Mm -hmm. Right. They're public. Um, and then all of the shame and stigma that comes upon women and girls in particular around being survivors of, of sexual assault. Mm -hmm. Right. Because then it, it, it means something in people's families and in people's communities and the shame. And that that is not specific to Sudan. That is happening yeah. here in the United States. So I also think it's important for those of us who may have may not have as much experience or not as much of a framework to not start to also. Um, distance ourselves in the mm -hmm. United States from a dynamic that is actually happening here, yes. but it's just a little prettier, right? Or yeah. whatever, because we, we can get into that habit of those people over there or these, you know, right? Like mm -hmm. shaming people and uh, stereotyping folks when the same tactics are actually coming from the root source of white supremacy, which is here in the United States and across Europe. Um, and yeah. so it's important to have a full, a full narrative as we're looking at what is happening to women. Definitely. And not also, um, 
when you were talking about the Me Too movement, that would be amazing to be able to strategize on, on you know, healing steps for um, the victims there, but also um, to jump on this beautiful narrative of this women's revolution. I think that's been silenced by the massacre as well to a certain degree. There were some iconic images, voices, folks that came out of, that rose out of this revolution um, that will be in our minds forevermore. It's beautiful. And I think that we should celebrate that. And that's one thing that I definitely wanted to talk about today. I just feel, feel like a lot of the narrative has gone back to the UNICEF box of like this crying baby, put the penny in. And it's like, no, 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 no. This was June 3rd. Okay. Like, yes, the country's been, you know, under dictatorship for a really long time and impoverished. But you know what? So have so many of the diaspora cities around the world. And they're allowed to have, to hope and to dream and to change. And the continent needs that too. And everything was moving forward. And on June 2nd, everyone was so happy. And June 3rd, it's only been two weeks. We have a chance to actually fix this. Like we have an opportunity to put economic pressure, to put political pressure, to put international pressure on these goons and get rid of them. Like we really do. We have that power. And then we would have this much healing to do. You still have a whole soul of a, of, of a country that's united through tribal boundaries, that's united through language boundaries. Um, historical beef shut down because we are saying this is one struggle. Um, we need to jump on that for our own good. I think it would be a missed opportunity um, as a diaspora black person not to jump on this wave and use it for me um, and use it for my own freedom here or in the UK or wherever you might be. Um, so I do want to definitely, you know, start getting ready to heal. But before we heal, I want to get ready to win. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, we got to win. Mm-hmm. It's going to be a fight. It's going to be a long fight. But I think folks are ready. Yeah. Yeah. And it can be, it can, it absolutely can be done. Um, just the parallel of, of movement history, right? That women have always been at the forefront of radical changes in society, that this is not a new thing. It's a continuum. Mm-hmm. And so just the beauty of the parallels between the Black Lives Matter movement really being, um, Many people in community holding that together, and at the at the center, Patrice, Opal, and Alicia, providing direction and providing uh, visibility to the work that was on the ground. That is that is in parallel to what is what is happening now in Sudan, and has happened out throughout history. And I think patriarchy kind of sets us up to forget that those stories. So when things like this, when uprisings happen, we feel like we have to recreate and where the women there and what's my place, all of these questions. And our place has always been here, has always been strategy, has always been caring for folks, has always been providing hope, right? Because because mm-hmm. we, we, I feel like women have this capacity to provide hope in a way, right? Yeah. To, to hold hope. Um, as caretakers of community on many, many, many levels. And so just those parallels, and and this is not new and it is possible. Um, And I also think about our ancestors who, I'll speak specifically about my ancestors as a a black person whose family member was trafficked into the United States. Like all, everything that they did prior to my being born 
was making sure I could secure a particular like safety, dignity, belonging, even if they couldn't have it for themselves. And so I don't see that as un a uniqueness in my black experience. I see that as like part of black folks and how we sustain culture and how we stay in relationships and how we stay connected to one another yeah. is through, we're very life affirming peoples, right? And yeah. so I, I see that happening as folks are um, reorganizing and not losing hope and are incredibly resilient folks because they have been, because we're life-affirming people. Mm -hmm. And I see, I see that as part of the uprisings that are happening. People of the earth, that's what I would mm -hmm. say. We give life, we mm -hmm. affirm life, we rooted in it. Yeah, the womb. Um, definitely, I, the, like, and like you said, I have so much on my mind because there's so many layers to all of mm -hmm. this. Um, I can't express how much I appreciate you actually breaking through this and like just mm -hmm. helping me think through this. Um, how do you all work? Like, what is Black Lives Matter? Yeah. Like, so Black Lives Matter belongs to all Black people, right? Because okay. all Black lives matter. Um, and so we are a decentralized network. So a lot of the work that you may see looks different based upon the situations of Black people wherever we are. Mm -hmm. And so it's not an organization. Well, the network that I'm a part of here in New York City, we're not a paid entity. This is a group of community organizers, artists, parents, filmmakers who are connected to their communities and who are organizing to do different things. So particularly here in New York, we work on a lot of campaigns around incarceration, right? That is the entry point. So right now, um, quite a few folks are working on the No New Jails campaign. So here in New York City, as Rikers Island is, there's a proposal to shut it down. Rikers Island is one of the largest penal colonies on the planet. And a significant number of folks who are housed there, who are detained there, who are imprisoned there, are, are there for for a low level crimes. I use crimes in um, low level incidents are there because part of um, because of mental health issues. They've been in prison because they have mental health issues. It's just a mess. And so while we know. Rikers needs to close. What we're also not about is having new jails pop up in our communities. Mm -hmm. So the city is doing a proposal of, all right, in each borough here in New York, each borough will have a, what they call a community jail, where it'll be in the communities where people live. So you won't have to travel so far to see your folks. And we're like, hey, can we just talk about why do we actually need prisons, <laughs> right? Can we actually have that conversation? Yeah. Um, and we're not trying to normalize prisons inside of a community because you make it nice and fluffy. So I use that as an example of the kinds of organizing that happens through the Black Lives Matter network. There's also across the country uh, a strong Say Her Name network mm -hmm. because part mm -hmm. of what happens uh, in, and just in our experience, right, this goes back to patriarchy that we can very easily miss what is happening to people who do not identify as male, right? Right. So, um, um, my socialization and my upbringing is to be hyper aware of what is happening to Black men and boys at all time because so much is happening to them that at sometimes we miss our own, we miss each other. What yeah. is happening to Black women and girls, cis and trans and non-binary folks? Like, what is happening? to us and so that say her name network is not an official place where we go and meet it's a network of folks who are making sure that issues that are happening to women as it relates to the police are um, are being visible and so you have all manner of things uh, 
a couple of months ago, you might have uh, noticed around Mother's Day, actually, there was a mama bailout campaign where, uh, mm-hmm. right, like working to bail out mothers who were picked up for, again, most of the time for warrants, for low-level warrants, traffic tickets, and then can't afford to pay their bail, can't come home. And so what would it be like to raise funds so people could actually be home? And they're really nominal uh, warrant fees. And so those are some examples of some of the organizing. So Black Lives Matter is a space that is available to everybody. So if you care about Black people in your community, it's here for you. It's not one place. And then you find your local chapter. Yeah, you find your local chapter. And also people start their own work. Okay. So uh, there are pla- and that's what we did. We, um, uh, about 500 of us went to Ferguson before it was an official Black Lives Matter movement. It was called like the Black Life Matters Ride. Wow. We wanted to go to uh, Ferguson to support folks, to show our solidarity, to bring resources and expertise as a c- community identified and what local folks said was, this Ferguson is everywhere. So, and we knew that. So mm-hmm. go back home and keep organizing. And that's pretty much how you experience us as organizing nationally and locally. And then do you all, is there like a central place that you can get the information that you would need yeah, sure. to, or is there training for, organiz- for organizers? Definitely. So um, again, particularly in New York City, we see ourselves as a network of networks. There are already so many people doing incredible work here before people knew the phrase Black Lives Matter. So we tr- see ourselves as connecting to other folks. So you can definitely follow us on social media at, at Black, BLMNYC. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can follow us at Black Lives Matter New York City on Facebook. Um, and that will provide entry into a lot of incredible organizations that are organizing and so we are, we organize with uh, the Black Alliance for Just Immigration, BAJI. We organize with just a whole host of folks here, um, communities united for police reform. So when you think of us, you want to just think of us as your, as your kinfolk, but also folk who are easily accessible through whatever issues matter to you. So we got Carice and Josh in the studio with us today, and we um we have some a, a few questions. Hey, okay. hello, <laughs> hi Selma. Hi, Carice. Hi, hi Monica. Hey, hey Josh. Hey. Uh, so Monica, thank you so much for joining us, and um, it is really nice to have a conversation that brings a a bit more light to all of the things that we've been discussing. You know what I mean? I think that illumination is so important in this work that we do in having true understanding and explaining it and, you know, unpacking in, 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 in many different ways so that people can, can really know and, you know, and understand for themselves um, and how to apply it and implement in their own work. Um, and, you know, it's, it's also nice to see you because of our connection of, of, you know, being co-organizers of the ride to Ferguson and uh, just bring so much joy to hear all of the wonderful work that you've been doing. Um, I, I literally can't stop smiling right now. <laughs> um, and it's just been so important. I, I really wanted to zoom out just quickly and, and ask a question about, um, you know, your work, your work asks us to do some systemic analysis, right? And 
I I would like to know, you know, from your point of view, how does the African and Black diaspora fit into that analysis of the the, the, the systemic problems? Hmm. Yeah, so I can't actually have an analysis of myself and what is happening here that's outside of an analysis of the diaspora. Like, it just is not possible. The reason I'm here, how long my people have been here, what is happening is directly pointed back to the continent of Africa and through the diaspora. Like, my folks are almost like the last part of that experience of folks. And so it's critical to have an analysis that um, one does not monothalize the continent or the diaspora that allows space for us to have um, multiple, a multiplicity of experiences by under, but understanding like the common threads that are working against us that allows for um, an expansive understanding of our humanities based upon faith traditions, based upon genders, based upon sexualities, right? All of that is, is part of our analysis and being able to understand it in relationship to each other. So I think it's, it's critical. Um, I know, and so much of how we organize and are influenced in the United States as black organizers is coming from, has always come from the diaspora, right? Whether we're talking about uh, Haitian Revolution is a direct connection mm -hmm. to revolutions that are happening mm -hmm. all over the, uni the United States southern region. Um, if it's Garvey or Walter Rodney or all of these incredible um, political figures and cultural figures who are informing, who are actually calling those of us who are born in the United States into our full blackness, right? In a way that when you're living under a settler colony like we do in the United States where you're faced with whiteness and white people all the time. There's a, there's a, I know there's a way we internalize minimalizing our blackness mm -hmm. over generations. And so to have the influence and relationship analysis and cultural influences of people who are still living under oppression, but are in a black state or a black formation deeply influences how we the possibilities of how we can move right mm -hmm. and so i think any any attempts to be separated from that history is ultimately going to do us in right and then and then i uh, i slash we in the united states can then start to replicate some of the same dynamics that we're trying to fight against if we don't have an analysis like i can do the same thing to brothers and sisters and siblings across the planet who look like me if I don't have an analysis of what has happened to all of us and what we've also created, right? So it's not just the the narrative about, about what oppressors have done, it's also the analysis of victory and organizing and legacy that, that I'm also riding on. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's fantastic. And um, just to sort of zoom out a little bit more, I, I wanna know what do you think, you know, because part of what's important about this work is sort of galvanizing and getting people who want to be involved involved in a lot of the work in their communities, right? Uh, and and one of those steps is just starting, right? <laughs> and, and what that looks like. Uh, and so you're a teacher, and teaching is a part of your practice. Uh, I want to know, you know, what's what's something you know younger. And new organizers, right? Just because you're new doesn't mean you're young. <laughs> you know what I mean? I think that's important because I think it has to be inter intergenerational in this work. Mm -hmm. um, so for younger new organizers, you know, 
you know, what do you think they should think about or, or do as they begin the work in their communities? I think uh, folks should spend time understanding their own stories. Right. So I have a practice called locating self. Um, and just what are the stories I have access to about who my people are? And I use people not in a biological or genealogical sense, but just like who are the people that have influenced me? What were the circumstances and conditions that actually are creating their realities? Who are they in relationship to? How did, you know, what are the patterns of migration? There's so much there about understanding self um, that is not an individual exercise. Well, that will automatically help us to pivot towards each other and to other folks. So I think a real deep exploration of self and contextualizing yourself in a larger cycle of history is really important. And we do that through art. We do that through song. We can do that through like throwdowns in the kitchen, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> we can do that while we're caring for each other's kids, just conversations where we can reflect like, like, who, like who, am I, who am I? Who are you? How do we get to this moment? What are the influences? I think that's so critical. And then we can see ourselves inside of movement spaces. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Uh, I just kind of wanted to get to know you a little bit better in terms, because BLM is relatively new. You know, you're thinking about it, it's not really that, not that old at all. So I was just curious to know, um, like, what was your, what were you doing kind of before BLM? Were you organizing before? I get the sense that you probably were in some way, shape mm -hmm. or form, but just wanted to know a little bit more about your background. Yeah, for sure. So um, as I was sharing a little bit earlier, my family has been here many generations. And so while I did not come from a political family, I came from, I'm from a family and many families who are committed to staying alive and then thriving, right? And I don't mean like in an economic sense. Mm. And so they were organizing even though they didn't see themselves as organizers, mm -hmm. right? And so I come up in an organizing community and family that looks like um, people are passing away in community and they don't have money to bury their family members are going to organize to make sure to care for folks' funerals. Um, people are being, young girls are being harassed in the community. And so what does it mean for elders to come out and be on the street corner and watch kids come home from school to make sure? So like that is shaping my consciousness. Like what are the everyday ways that we can care for each other in community mm -hmm. that does not depend upon the state? is my reality and is how my yes. people have survived over generations and my people and all of our people as we sit here at this table. And so when there's some critical moments, I'm, I'm a person who was born and raised in New York City, so there's some critical moments that deeply impacted me. So the, what, who, the folks who we know as the Central Park Five are my peers in age and peers in lived in experience and peers in terms of spaces that we inhabited. And so... Um, that is, I would say, one of the first places where my organizing got activated, right? And so there were rallies that were happening that, again, mothers, mostly mothers of those, uh, of, of, uh, of some of the Central Park Five were holding. And I would go to these spaces not knowing what to do, but there was, but there was a space to go to. And I would be educated in this space and I could feel a sense of like contributing to something that had been instilled in me to contribute and to participate. Um, and then I found myself in spaces that don't exist anymore in this city. Uh, there used to be a place in Bed-Stuy, Brooklyn called the Slave Theater. It's on Fulton and Nostrand. 
And it was an old movie theater, purposely named the Slave Theater, but what was going on in there was radical consciousness raising, where black leaders from all over the diaspora would come like twice a week and teach, right? It was just open, free space. And so being in that space connected me to other people, but also gave me a politic to understand what was happening to me on a day-to-day basis. And so... My organizing has been around state violence is what I'm saying to you, right? How to get the state off of people and how people can continue to live. Sorry, I lost it for a second. Because when you mentioned the Central Park Five, I just watched Mm -hmm. last night. And that was one of the hardest things I've ever done. I just need to say yes. I didn't even watch the whole thing. Mm -hmm. I couldn't do it. I watched the over one. I'm sorry. No need for sorry. I remember I grew up in New York. So I remember when all was coming out. Trump and the whatever. The the thugs and their wilding. And that was just, oh God, watching those men at the end. It was just. And like I said, I I couldn't even watch it. I I couldn't even make it through. Mm I was like, I don't need to see this. I can't do Mm -hmm. it. And then, yeah, the Oprah thing just tore me up. So sorry. As soon as you got to that, yeah, I, like, no, I can't even. No sorry. Yeah. Like, I, I have a, I, I, I can't watch it either, actually, because I watched the, even though, like, I watched the documentary that came out, like, two or three, like, three years ago or something like that. And, like, that that was enough for me. Like, I was just like, I'm very happy that the, that, that when they see us is, is you know, is, is out, but I'm not as, inter- I'm not, a, like, I don't I think know. it should be mandatory viewing yeah. for all high school yeah. Yeah, kids I'm, of every color. I'm wondering, I, I, you know, I, I, I've, I've watched it, and uh, it, it is, it's heavy. Um, I, you know, people, I felt like I had on a weighted bank blanket the whole time. You know what I mean? A very heavy one, and I, you know, I just remember like not being able to move and, and, and taking it in. Um, uh, this brings me to wondering, you know, anybody can sort of jump in on this, but maybe Monica. This work is hard. Um, engaging these yeah. issues are very difficult at times. Um, we know the emotional impact of the work that we do um, very well. I'm wondering what are some, I, I guess, strategies, you know what I mean, to continue to engage things and the work, mm-hmm. even though it is very difficult and we don't want to, um, but we have to. Mm-hmm. I think we have to take turns as one strategy. Yeah, <laughs> right now, tomorrow. Huh? Yeah, yeah. So, like <laughs> the onslaught of hostility and terrorism against Black bodies, Black people, Black minds, Black spirits is on is relentless. Like it's constant. It is coming at a force that is like accelerated, and so. How do we know enough about each other to take turns, yeah. like straight up and not shame each other? Sometimes I know um, I have felt like I'm not doing enough. And the way trauma works, our ability to do more is actually being broken down, right? So my I find if I watch too many stories or if I'm not pacing when I watch, um, when they see us or anything that's going on, that my my ability to actually process in my mind and do basic functions is getting altered because of the multiple layers of trauma mm-hmm. that are happening, mm-hmm. right? So we are living it day to day. We're witnessing each other. 
right? Um, and then we have historical trauma of many different kinds that are happening to us. So trauma is happening on a level that is exponential. And if we don't slow down and be easy with each other and not shame each other for you need to do such and such, that's not going to help us be able to be in it for the long haul. I also bring with me a practice of healing justice. So anytime I facilitate or gather people, there are plants, herbs, medicines there to address whatever it is you may need or what we may be talking about, right? So I generally, for an example, will walk around with lavender in my bag because lavender is a it's a plant that's an upper and a downer. It knows what you need. So if I'm being overactivated and I just put a little in my hand and put it to my nose, it actually knows how to regulate my nervous system. Mm. If I'm getting too low, it knows, right? And so this is part of also the political education that we get to do is that. healing justice, which is a, uh, uh, um, an experience and a term that was, was given to us by Kara Page, who used to be at the... Audrey Lord project, right? But that we actually have to heal while we are seeking justice. We cannot be forgotten. So everything from water. And then to remember that um, care is communal, right? So we live in a very individ individualistic society that pushes self-care. And yes, I am responsible for myself, but I got to come check on you. Yeah. I got to give you a phone well, call. Self-care, I always say, is it's a lot of things, I think, out in the ether right now, like how we're supposed to move and do are very not of us. Mm -hmm. So where, you know, self-care to, and I'm not criticizing it, but to somebody else might be, you need alone time and get on a plane and go to a spa by yourself. We're a family reunion, a barbecue, a tea, supper every night is where our people are come from, whether it be in the Brazilian diaspora, the African diaspora, across all of our houses, across all over. I went to school in New Orleans. New Orleans looked no different than Africa to me, than to Sudan, to Khartoum to me, as far as like that connection. So that self-care is what they break down when they make us afraid of each other. When they, when they, break, when they build those walls between us, that's what they're taking away. They're taking away your ability to heal each other by forming your communities and actually, you know, looking out for each other. One thing that I always say is one of the biggest tragedies of an assault on the Sudanese culture is you can say lots of like negative things about Sudanese, like, you know, kind of lazy or whatever our stereotypes are of like, oh, they don't do this or you don't do that or your country's not up to this standard or whatever. Um, we have a legacy and history of community. That's why this revolution was possible in this way. Uh, when I was little, if somebody knocked on your door and said they didn't have food, you invited them in, no questions asked. You went and you got them a jalabia, you got them an undershirt, you got them a sirwal from your grandfather's closet, you fed them, they tried to figure out where their family was, they stayed as long as they had to, and then sometimes they went on their way. Sometimes they moved into your house. That's what we're from. That's what we're out. Um, throughout the South, before I, our, our, our communities were segregated in that way, we had that. And I think we need to return to that um, and start to you know, strategize a lot of these principles that you gave us that are very inherent to our people. Mm -hmm. um, and I thank you for that. Um, there's a few things I wanted to say before we wrap up. When waves like this happen, it's not 
in one point in time or one place. When the civil rights movement was happening in America, Africa was also gaining its independence from colonial leaders. The Black Panther Party, Che Guevara and Castro, all of them spent time on the continent during that time. The Black Panthers found a safe place on the continent where they were able to lead and execute on strategies and organizing movements around the planet and around the diaspora. This is part of our history that's never talked about. And when we do see it on a Facebook video or whatever, we think it's a conspiracy. It's not. We've always worked together, like Monica has said. And right now, I know it's difficult to get all of the information that we can about the continent, but I would like everyone to commit to reading black news. No black news. I'm not saying go back to a history class and study ancient Kush. Read current black news. Know what's happening to your people. Ghana is making tremendous steps to saying, listen, the African continent will rise. The African Union is the first organization that stepped in to say anything about Sudan. We need to move and act together. We have Rwanda is a country that needs our support. You should try to find products from Rwanda and buy them. You should travel to Rwanda. It's a, it's a, a home and, and, and stable force in the continent. If we, if we support stability, then we will conquer instability. You'll have no choice. It'll be in, in the investor's best interest to support democracy. And that's what we need to do. Ethiopia is very fragile right now. If Sudan falls, Ethiopia is highly at risk of falling as well. We can't let that happen. Our history is there. Our library is there. Our pyramids are all over Sudan. We need to preserve this. Um, you guys are hearing about Cameroon right now. It's very related as well. People want a different, they want inclusion. These are all results of post-colonial garbage that we're still cleaning up. Algeria is fighting for a revolution. The home of the Black, they gave the Black Panthers a home. We deserve to read their current events. They deserve that. Um, and one last African country I wanted to mention before I go, big up to Morocco. The wave is moving. The wave is, is, is going in the right direction. They just um, uh, officially recognized Berber, Amazigh as a national language, which is huge. So it's Arabic and um, Amazigh and French. So that is huge. That is what we're battling. We're not battling our victimhood. We're battling, they're battling our greatness. And just keep that in mind. It, this isn't about UNICEF boxes. This is about keep walking and keep stepping. They're afraid of you. Um, Monica, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. And for the light that you shine and your brilliance and keeping a space like this where we can come and talk about what is happening. That's our show. Biggest thank you to our dope guest, Monica Dennis. Thank you, Monica. And Ishmael Kushkush. Thank you, Ishmael. All the links and handles you need are available in the show notes and on thebrownceo.com. Thank you to our wonderful sponsor, The Brown Crayon Project, and to our family here at the Brooklyn Podcasting Studio. We want to hear from you. Keep the conversation going. Tell us what you think. Talk to us on Twitter at The Brown CEO. Subscribe and review our podcast on iTunes or go to thebrownceo.com.